turbulent times call for clear-headed insight. That's hard to come by these days, especially on TV. That's where we come in. Salem News Channel has the greatest collection of conservative minds all in one place. People you know and trust, like Dennis Prager, Eric Metaxas, Charlie Kirk, and more. Unfiltered, unapologetic truth. Find what you're searching for at snc.tv and on Local Now Channel 525. This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through X. sure many of us can give testimony to the fact that we were in certain situations, the opportunity presented itself, we kind of felt nervous, but we shared anyway, and God took the little bit that we said and turned it into something incredible, and He just used us as a vessel, and He gave us the words that we didn't really think we had, and, and wonderful results occurred because God, by His Spirit, will speak to us and through us. And so rely on the Holy Spirit. When people ask you about your faith, do you boldly share? As you listen to today's message from Pastor Gary, he encourages you that it's normal to be nervous. Many people get nervous to share their convictions with others. But be encouraged. Jesus is with you always through the gift of His Holy Spirit within you. Pastor Gary reminds you that the Holy Spirit empowers you to share. He's the one that gives you the words to say and the boldness to proclaim. Trust that He's guiding you as you speak. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of Acts chapter 25 with today's edition of Cornerstone Connection. Turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 25. We're going to look at Acts 25 and 26 tonight. And then Acts 27 and 28 next week. We'll close out the book of Acts next week. And then uh, we'll be off to the book of Romans. If you remember where we left off in chapter 24, Paul has been falsely charged of various matters, including insurrection against the Roman government and preaching against the law of Moses. And even though he's a Jew, of turning against the Jews. And and basically, people don't like to hear that his message is the message of the good news of Jesus. They don't like to hear the gospel, okay? Times have not changed, friends. All right, you can go to a dinner party and you can talk about any current event and people will find you engaging. You start talking about Jesus, you'll clear the room. And that's what happens here. Paul is just, you know, preaching the good news of Jesus. People don't want to hear it. You know, he could have talked about just about any other subject and, and people would have probably been engaged. But when he starts talking about Jesus, they get offended. They don't want to hear it. And it's worse than even offended. They, they are so bothered that they want to kill him. For his own safety, he's been transported to the city of Caesarea, which is along the coast of the Mediterranean. And uh, he is kept there under house arrest, basically. It's, it's unclear that it seems to be that he has a little bit of freedom to move around Caesarea, but he can't leave the town of Caesarea. 
And so he appeals his case to the governor of that province at the time, which was headquartered in Caesarea, the, the capital of the Roman Empire. That region was Caesarea. And his name was Felix. Uh, governor uh, Marcus Antonius Felix was his full name. But Felix tried to bribe Paul. Why don't you just, you know, give me some money and I'll set you free. So we find out he's a man of not very great character. And in fact, he gets recalled eventually to Rome. Uh, his wife, Drusilla, when he gets recalled to Rome, she ends up going to Pompeii, as I mentioned at the close of last week's Bible study, and she actually dies in the eruption of Mount Vesuvius that then completely collapses Pompeii. So, so Felix is going to be replaced by the next governor or procurator of the Roman Empire of this region, and his name is Festus. So we're introduced to him here in chapter 25. And even before I read verse 1, let me just give you a little bit on him. And we don't know much. Historically, there's very little about this guy. But his name is Portius Festus. He's governor or procurator of Judea, this particular area, this region of the Roman Empire, uh, from the years 59 to 62 AD. He was sent by Nero to replace Marcus Antonius Felix. And he dies suddenly in 62 AD, ending obviously his reign, and it leaves Judea temporarily without a Roman governor. That's about all we know concerning this particular governor. And so we're introduced to him right off the bat at verse 1. Chapter 25, verse 1 says, Three days after arriving in the province, Festus went up from Caesarea to Jerusalem where the chief priests and Jewish leaders appeared before him and presented the charges against Paul. So it tells us here in verse 1 that he, he comes from Rome. He is sent by Nero the emperor. He now has a new you know, command, and his command is the province of Judea. Headquarters is Caesarea, so he goes first to Caesarea. It's a seaport city, so no doubt he has sailed the Mediterranean to get here. Uh, but he's not there more than three days, and he decides to go to Jerusalem. So he wants to kind of check out the territory. He wants to kind of get a good overview of what's going on in this particular region that he's now responsible for overseeing. This is, after all, the place where Jews are living. So he's got to understand the culture. He's got to learn what's going on with the Jewish people. So he goes to Jerusalem. It is about 68 to 70 miles away from Caesarea. So he makes this journey. And when he gets there, some Jews take the opportunity to make the argument against Paul. Now, Paul is still left in Caesarea. He's under you know, house arrest. He's being guarded in Caesarea. So Festus does not come up to Jerusalem with him. But news about Paul travels with him. And there's some Jews who are going to bring up these charges to Festus because you know he's the new governor now. And so they realize that Felix may not necessarily have filled him in on everything. And so they want to bring him up to speed. By the way, Paul now is, is just spending two years in Caesarea because Felix didn't want to deal with him. And now that Festus is governor, his matter is going to be dealt with. But for two years, Paul just sits in Caesarea. Well, when Festus gets here to Jerusalem, chief priests, the Jewish leaders appeared before him, presented the charges against Paul. Verse 3, they urgently requested Festus as a favor to them to have Paul transferred to Jerusalem and we get the insight, for they were preparing an ambush to kill him along the way. Okay, Festus doesn't know that, but these Jewish people who are just so angry about Paul, they're looking for a way to kill him, and so under the pretense of, you know, why don't you have Paul come and see us in Jerusalem, and we'll hold a little court case here. Their real motive was to kill him. So verse 4, Festus answered, Paul is being held at Caesarea, 
and I myself am going there soon. Let some of your leaders come with me and press charges against the man there if he has done anything wrong. Well, after spending eight or ten days with them, he went down to Caesarea, and the next day he convened the court and ordered that Paul be brought before him. When Paul appeared, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many serious charges against him, which they could not prove, by the way. All right, because these, again, these are baseless charges, but they take Festus up on his invitation. Festus, it sounds like a sore, doesn't his name sound, I don't know why, festering anyway. So Festus the sword, the governor of Judea, he, he invites these Jewish people. If you have charges against Paul, come back with me to Caesarea. That's where Paul is. I'll, I'll convene court. I'll hear the charges. So they go. But they're baseless charges. So they don't really have anything that they can prove. Now, verse 8. Then Paul made his defense. Let me pause there before we talk about all that he says. I want you to circle the word defense. It's an important word in the Bible. The word defense in the Greek is apologeomei, and uh, we find this word uh, mentioned several times through the New Testament. One of the most popular times that the word is used is in 1 Peter 3.15, a, a variation of the word, uh, which says this, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. And it is the Greek word apologia. For the word answer, same root word as the word defense here in Acts chapter 25. Now, important word to note. Why? Well, apologia is where we get our English word apology or to apologize, but it is a theological term. The theological term is apologetics. And apologetics, just in its basic, most simple definition means the defense of the Christian faith. Now, I'll give you the background on this first because we're going to talk about apologetics a little bit before we even see what Paul's response is. But I want you to please notice we use the word in a wrong way today. We use the word to communicate that we have to say we're sorry about something. All right? If you, if somebody says to you, you need to apologize, then in our Western interpretation, we've interpreted that word to mean I need to say I'm sorry for something. Okay, that's not the original use of the word. We've kind of stretched it to mean, I want to say you're sorry. It really comes from two words, apo meaning out, and logia meaning to say. And so it really means to say out. In other words, somebody makes an accusation against you, and you say out your defense. So it, you're not even necessarily sorry about anything. You're just communicating, you know, your defense. So for all of those men who think that an apology means you need to say you're sorry. Well, I won't even go there. But anyhow, it's still good to say you're sorry. But the real word of apologia means to say out, to speak out. Your defense. Paul wasn't sorry about anything. He's making his defense. And so it's an important word for us to understand, primarily because of 1 Peter 3.15. Always be prepared to give an answer, to make a defense, to speak out. Always prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you for the reason, to give the reason for the hope that you have. Now, by the way, that verse implies something, doesn't it? That verse implies that people are noticing something about your life such that they would ask you. Okay? 
Our lives need to be on visible display that we belong to the Lord, such that it would spur people on to want to inquire about our lives. So Peter says, always be prepared to give an answer. Always be prepared to give an apologia. Always be prepared to give a defense of your faith. So I just want to spend like five minutes, maybe a little bit longer, talking about apologetics a little bit, because I think this is an important verse, an important point for us to understand. Then we're going to see what Paul does in terms of his own defense. Apologetics, how to defend your faith. First of all, five practical things in defending your faith. Here's the first one, know the Bible. And obviously, in order to know the Bible, you're going to have to read the Bible. You're going to have to study the Bible. You're going to have to become a student of the Bible. Because if you want to defend your faith, you kind of have to know what the Bible says. So it is the greatest handbook to equip you in defending the Christian faith. So know the Bible, study the Bible, read the Bible. I understand that sometimes you can read parts of the Bible and you think, I don't, I don't really understand what all this means. Okay, but you know, still read it. The Lord will give you wisdom to give you understanding. But it is important for us to read it, get into our hearts, get into our minds, and be prepared to give a reason when people ask us, and we have to know the Bible. You know, listen, I understand. Don't, you know one of the biggest things that the enemy wants us to think is that because you don't know all the Bible from cover to cover, you shouldn't ever open your mouth. And so, so we become paralyzed. We think, well, I'm not a Bible scholar, and you know, and I'm not this, and I'm not that, and so I'm just not going to say anything. Open your mouth and trust the Lord, and but you got to know some foundation of Scripture in order to be equipped enough to defend your faith. So get into the Bible, but don't feel like if you don't know the entire thing, you can never share. Just know the Bible and share what you as much as you know. And here's the second thing, and sometimes people overlook this: is know your audience. Understand who you are sharing with. And when I say audience, I don't mean a, a, a necessarily a group of people. This can be just a single individual. But it's important for us to know the point of entry into their worldview. If you really want to connect the story of Christianity and faith and what it means, you have to be able to understand as much as you can where the person is coming from. What, it, what is the entry point of the conversation? What is their worldview? Remember in Mark's Gospel, chapter 10, verse 18, the, the rich young ruler who comes up to Jesus, and he says to Jesus, he says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? All right, that's his, that's his question to Jesus. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus replies by saying, why do you call me good? Now notice he, he a- answers a question with a question. And he doesn't just immediately answer his question. Well, here's what you need to do to receive eternal life. He starts with a question because he's discerning this guy's worldview. And he's understanding where the entry point is into this guy's heart. He says, why do you call me good? And then Jesus follows up and he says, for there is no one good except God. For there is no one good except God alone. So now he's challenging this guy. Are you calling me good because you think I'm God? Because if you think I'm God, well, there's a whole different conversation we're going to have here. And if you don't think I'm God, then there's another kind of a conversation we're going to have here. No one is good except God alone, which, by the way, also penetrated this guy's heart to make him realize he wasn't as good as he thought. Because Jesus sets the record straight. No one is good except God alone. You know some people who they think they're good people. 
And relatively speaking, they probably are good people. But the Bible presents the picture of humanity like this. There is none righteous. No, not one. None of us is good. None of us, we might have good motives. We might aspire to do good things. We, we might be good on certain days. But the human heart is deceitfully wicked above all things. Who can know it? Jeremiah says, there's none righteous. No, not one. Our righteousness is as filthy rags, Isaiah tells us. So if somebody thinks I'm all good and I'm okay, then that's the first thing that you need to address. But in order to understand where are they coming from, what's their worldview, what's their perspective, what's their background, what do they think about God, you're going to have to ask a few questions to know the person that you're speaking to. And remember, Paul did this very thing back in Acts chapter 17 when he preached the gospel to the men of the Areopagus or Mars Hill. And here they were, these Greco-Roman people who believed in, in a multitude of gods. They were polytheistic in their worship. And because they didn't want to offend some god that they had left out by name, they have all these various statues up there on Mars Hill to all these various gods. But they even made a statue that said to an unknown god just in case they left somebody out. And Paul uses that statue, that idol, to point out, to address their worldview. I see that you have a statue here to an unknown god. I'm going to explain to you who that unknown God is, because he can be known. And what was he doing? He was understanding his audience. He was recognizing where they're coming from. He's understanding their polytheistic worldview. And so he uses that worldview as an entry point to share the gospel. Sometimes I think that we think when we're sharing our faith or when we try to communicate God's word, that it's just, I'm just going to, you know, turn on the fire hose and I'm just going to let it go. And it's just like, wait a minute, before you just completely, you know, knock somebody down with the fire hose, why don't you try a garden hose, okay? Why don't you give them a drink of water with a garden hose, and in so doing, find out a little bit about where they're coming from. Don't just launch into the gospel presentation. I understand sometimes there might be the necessity and an urgency of a moment where you got to just kind of launch into it. But to the degree that you are able to just kind of understand and approach them from their worldview and begin to share Christ from a perspective that they can understand, then do that. Know the Bible. Know your audience. Number three, this might sound silly to some of you, but rehearse your testimony. What I mean by that is, you know, take time to pray through your story. No one can dispute your story. They may not like it, but they can't argue with it. It's your story. So I would encourage people to, all the time, if you want to really be able to defend your faith and speak about your relationship with Christ, take some time maybe to write out your testimony, or just as you're driving in your car, you know, on your way to work, rehearse, this is, this is my story, and I just want to kind of rehearse this so that I can share it with, with somebody when that moment presents itself. So just kind of talk it through as you're driving. People will turn and look at you talking to yourself. It's fine, all right? It's fine. Don't worry about it. But rehearse your testimony. Number four, read good books on apologetics. Now, I'm going to give you six recommendations, all right? And this is just a, a good way for us to become equipped. It's not a substitute for the Bible, but there's some good godly people out there who have written some good books. And so if you want to learn more about how to defend your faith, 
Here's a list of six. So I'm going to tell you the first one on the list, Christian Apologetics, an A to Z guide by Dr. Norman Geisler, is, I mean, it was required reading for me in Bible college. This is kind of, if you like kind of the deep textbook kind of stuff, okay, that's the first book, all right? But otherwise, the other books are great straight reads. One of the first books I was ever given on apologetics was the second book on the list, Jesus Among Other Gods by Ravi Zacharias. I can't recommend that enough. And by the way, Ravi Zacharias is called, within Christian circles, an apologist. An apologist doesn't mean he's going around saying he's sorry. He's an apologist because he's an expert in apologetics. You can YouTube stuff on Ravi Zacharias, and you can see him debating students at college campuses. It is awesome. He gets up and he, and he fields questions from, from you know just a bunch of non-believers at a bunch of college campuses, and they throw hard questions at him. And this man is one of the, the most studied, scholarly, but very, very well-spoken, who can communicate in ways that are clear to understand the deep mysteries and profound truths of God. And so that is a great book, Jesus Among Other Gods. And again, I encourage you, YouTube Ravi Zacharias and watch some of the stuff that he, that he says on college campuses. More Than a Carpenter by Josh McDowell. He wrote that book as a result of his own coming to faith after he investigated the claims of Christ for himself as a complete atheist and then wrote More Than a Carpenter many years ago. Then he wrote a follow-up book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. I think actually there's a newer version out called New Evidence That Demands a Verdict, also by Josh McDowell. And then two books by Lee Strobel I recommend, uh, The Case for Christ and The Case for Faith. Great books by Lee Strobel. And he answers, you know, those hard questions when people start to say, well, if God was such a loving God, why is there so much suffering in the world? He answers some of those kind of tough questions that you get from people. Well, explain to me, you know, what happens to this, to the person who's never heard, lives on some remote island in, you know, South America? What about that person? You know, and a lot of times people will raise those issues, quite honestly, as a smoke screen because they don't want to be accountable themselves. So to deflect, the issue about where they stand with, with the Lord, they'll always throw those kind of questions. Well, what about the guy on the island? Why don't you just stop worrying about the guy on the island and worry about yourself and where you stand in relation to the Lord? But that's where they're coming from, and that's where we need to meet them at. Uh, so I recommend these books if you want to take some time to check them out and, uh, and pick them up. If you really want to be serious about you know, being equipped a little bit more about defending the faith and, um, and you know, being able to, to share in defense of Christianity. Those are some great books I recommend. But here's the fifth one, and we must not overlook, rely on the Holy Spirit. Rely on the Holy Spirit. Luke 12, 11, Jesus said, do not worry about how to defend yourself or what you will say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what you should say. And I'm sure many of us can give testimony to the fact that we were in certain situations, the opportunity presented itself, we kind of felt nervous, but we shared anyway, and God took the little bit that we said and turned it into something incredible, and he just used us as a vessel, and he gave us the words that we didn't really think we had, and, and wonderful results occurred because God, by his Spirit, will speak to us and through us. And so rely on the Holy Spirit. But um, those are just some basic things that I thought might be helpful in defending the faith. Let's go back now to see what Paul says here about his own personal defense. Verse 8 and Paul made his defense, I have done nothing wrong against the law of the Jews or against the temple or against Caesar. 
Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and stand trial before me there on these charges? And Paul answered, I am now standing before Caesar's court, where I ought to be tried. I have not done any wrong to the Jews, as you yourself know very well. We're so glad you joined us for this edition of Cornerstone Connection with Pastor Gary Hammer. Pastor Gary's been going through the book of Acts. If you missed any part of this message, you can hear it again on our website, cornerstoneconnection.cc. You might want to download our mobile app so you have these teachings with you on the go. That way, you'll never miss a message from Pastor Gary's studies, and you'll always have encouragement from God's Word at your fingertips. Find a link to download the app for your iPhone or Android device at our website, cornerstoneconnection.cc. Simply look under the Teachings tab. While you're there, feel free to take some time to learn about the church this radio ministry originates from, Cornerstone Chapel. We'd be happy to meet you. You'll find all you need to know about service times and other info on our website. Again, that's cornerstoneconnection.cc. We hope and pray you've been blessed by today's teaching in the book of Acts. Keep reading on your own in this book and discover so many inspiring and motivating things. Pastor Gary will continue teaching about the amazing acts done by God and His Spirit on our next edition of Cornerstone Connection.